This episode contains adult themes and explicit language. On the downside, it's also got spoilers. These are the sounds of Times Square in the mid-1970s. And they were very familiar to a guy named Joao Luis Vieira when he left his home country of Brazil for a stint in New York City. So in 1977, I had a Fulbright scholarship to do my PhD in cinema studies at NYU. And when I arrived in New York, it was completely different than what it is today. 42nd Street was not, let's say, this sort of Disney theme park that it can be today, right? It was X-rated movie theaters one after the other on both sides of 42nd Street. Uh, It was dangerous. And look at you. What a piece of meat. But I would walk, I would go when, when, when I would go to plays on Times Square, on, on Broadway, I would pass by because I liked this idea of movie theaters one after the other. And that atmosphere was very live back in the 70s. Of course, those weren't exactly theaters for cinema nerds. Instead, Vieta was a regular at the art house film mecca 16 blocks north, it's still there, called the Paris Theater. And that movie theater was, I I liked it very much. They had a kind of profile of a very artsy movie theater as well that usually showed foreign films. Including films from his home country of Brazil. And one night in 1978, he went to the Paris to see one. It was a sexy, magical realist comedy he'd actually already seen back home. A movie the New York Times had dismissed as having a, quote, uncertain tone, but which had somehow become an art house hit anyway. It was called Donna Flor and Her Two Husbands. So I went there. And then I had the film with this very, I would say, perhaps upper middle class audience. I would say very well dressed for a Saturday night and very well behaved. Also very elegant patrons. People were laughing. Very, 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 it's not a kind of explosive laughter. It was more, more polite, I would say, more polite kind of smile. And then, but also giggling, giggling nervously at the erotic scenes. I would feel that. And that's when something occurred to him. This is my, this is a hypothesis I have. I think that word of mouth was spreading. The, the, the public of the Paris theater that would never go down to 42nd Street to watch a film on an X-rated movie theater. You could go to this very respectable artsy theater, but to see nude, nudity, to see sex, to see wild sex. You have, I, ha- I have, yes, I have this impression. Vera's laughing because Donna Flor and her two husbands is hardly some kind of porno. In a way, it was a snapshot of his gorgeous, troubled home country in all its complexity. And back home, this film that elicited polite smiles and titters at the Paris Theater had sold more tickets than any Brazilian film ever made. I'm Rico Galliano, and from the curated streaming service Mubi, Welcome back to the Movie Podcast. Movie showcases beautiful movies from every era and around the planet. We tell you the stories behind those films and any others with stories worth telling. This first season, we're diving into movies that were huge cultural phenomenons in just one country. 
And that is a fair description of Dona Flor. It definitely made a splash outside Brazil, as you just heard, sometimes maybe for the wrong reasons. But inside Brazil, it was a national triumph. After the first weekend, Veja, which is the equivalent of Time magazine in Brazil, wanted to have me and Sonia on the cover. That's the movie's director, Bruno Barreto. The Sonia he mentioned is the film's star, Sonia Braga. This episode, we'll hear from him and many others about how Dona Flor made her an international icon, arguably set the stage for a whole arthouse movie genre, and how what seemed to me like a fun, straightforward movie on first viewing contains all Brazil's multitudes. So listen up, because we're about to translate Dona Flor and her two husbands. Elizabeth Lowe is a scholar of Brazilian literature teaching at NYU, and she told me about a concept it's probably worth keeping in mind for the next 30 minutes or so. This idea of ambiguity, that is really the way Brazilians perceive reality. It's not black or white. It's not one thing or the other. It can be both. Okay. Although that concept was probably easy to forget in the Brazil of 1964, when the story of this movie begins. A time when things seemed very black and white. This is Brazilian President João Goulart giving a speech that year in which he announced a sweeping left-wing political agenda. About a month later, he was deposed by an extreme right-wing military coup. It was Goulart's leftist leanings and the fear that he would turn Brazil into a Castro state that led to an army revolt and his downfall. Oh, it was terrifying. I was on a public bus coming home from school when the military took over and the country literally stopped. Back then, Elizabeth was a teenager living in Brazil with her folks. Tanks rolled out into the street. Traffic stopped. Um, We were surrounded by soldiers. We were held for hours uh, before they would allow traffic to move again. And after that, everything kind of, it was as if a pall, a great shadow had fallen over the country. When the coup came, I was 15. Joao Vieira again. Today, he is a film professor at Brazil's Fluminense Federal University. The police would come and invade theaters and would bring artists to prison, and then they would be submitted to uh, interrogations. Some of them would spend some time in jail. You had this. It was terrible. And then people started disappearing. Censorship cracked down. The rhetoric became very strident. It um, It was a very dark time. The deposed president fled to neighboring Uruguay, and it appears that the new rebel government will find quick recognition abroad. The regime would last for over two decades. But just a couple years into it, 1966, came a little light in the darkness when Elizabeth was gifted a newly published book. I lived for two years with a Brazilian woman who happened to be a professor at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. And she educated me on Brazilian literature. And this book was the first book she gave me to read. She handed it to me and she said, I want you to read this and then we'll talk about it. It was called Dona Flor and Her Two Husbands, Elizabeth's first exposure to the author, Georgia Amado. 
Yes, Jorge Amado is one of Brazil's most well-known and beloved writers. He's absolutely revered. There's a foundation that's very active in his name. When he first started writing, he was more concerned with themes of social justice. And then in his later years, he started writing um, humorous novels with a wonderful array of characters. And Donna Flor and her two husbands belongs to that later phase. And in mid-1960s Brazil, everything about this story must have felt like a balm. As in the movie, which you're listening to right now, the book is set in the 1940s in Brazil's beautiful multicultural city of Salvador in the state of Bahia. More than one Brazilian described it to me as their New Orleans, where lives the title character. Dona Flor, she teaches, she's a cook. She gives uh, cooking lessons at home. She's married, she's married to this typical, typical Latin macho, vadinho, I would say violent, and a womanizer. And a compulsive gambler, and drinker, and you get the picture. But Vadino has one major saving grace. He's a master in bed. Very good in bed, but anyway, Vadinho dies. Vadinho, her first husband, dies, I think, of a heart attack during the carnival celebrations in Bahia. And then she becomes a widow. Then she spent some time, I think about a year, and then she meets this other guy, this other man who falls in love with her. É com prazer que eu me dirijo à tão veneranda e santa senhora. He is the pharmacist. He is the total opposite of the first husband. Very methodical, loves classical music. He has a job, so he brings Dona Flor with security. He brings security to her. Flor quietly, happily agrees to marry this sweet, respectful guy, Teodoro. But, but his sexy life, I would say, is very dull up to the point of making sex only on Wednesdays and Saturdays, and Saturdays with the bonus of having sex twice. So that's the kind of thing that makes Dona Flor uh, feel regret for her first husband. And so she goes to a, a ritual of Afro-Brazilian religion, where supposedly they have contact with the dead, and her desire is so strong that Vadinho, her first husband, materializes in front of her. Yeah, Vadinho comes back from the dead, naked and visible only to Flor, which at first is pretty confusing. After all, she's a good married woman. But finally, she has sex with Vadinho's ghost and ultimately decides, hey, this is a pretty good deal. She gets the best of the two lives. She has the best sex with Vadinho, and also she has the respectfulness brought by Theodore. Very happy. In the end, in other words, Dona Flor stops seeing the world in black or white. She doesn't have to choose the sexy scoundrel or the boring good guy. She can have the best of both on her terms. In fact, in Amato's world, everything beautiful is a mix. Bahia, where the story is set, and even, according to Elizabeth Lowe, the character of Dona Flor herself. Bahia is a heavily African-influenced culture, 
which has created the tradition of the wonderful Bahian cuisine, which is the cuisine that Floor specializes in. In fact, Floor, she's mixed blood, so she has African heritage. And the fame of Bahia rests on that cultural mix of African and Portuguese and, and indigenous elements that make up Brazilian population as a whole. So Dona Flor, to many people, represents the country and its dualities and its contradictions. So Joao Vieira says the whole thing's a celebration of? This Brazilian capacity, I would say, for conciliation, where, for example, we have this expression in Portuguese, tudo acaba em samba. Everything ends in samba, in the samba. Meaning kind of everything ends in the samba. We have our differences, but eventually we get together and dance. Right. Or everything ends in pizza, a pizza <laughs> also. There it is. In a time of political extremes, Amato had told a story about the joys of finding a happy medium. Or that's one way to read it anyway. Nothing is ever just one thing or the other. The book was a hit around the world, but in Brazil, it became part of the cultural canon. And in 1976, it would be brought to the screen by a filmmaker barely out of his teens. I'm Bruno Barreto, uh, director of Dona Flor and her two husbands. Bruno Barreto's descended from Brazilian movie royalty. His parents are legendary producers, which may partly explain how in 1973, Bruno had been able to shoot his incredibly assured first feature at age 17. It's called Tachi, a bittersweet story about a little girl and her single mom who moved from the outskirts of Rio to the inner city. It's a gritty, tender take on simple lives, and it shows the influence of one of Barreto's favorite directors. Francois Truffaut. I'm a Truffaut guy, not a Godard guy. I'm a romantic, and I, I don't know how I did it, because looking back, I said, I was 17, how could I, I should, I should be doing something else. But I was a nerd, I still am, <laughs> and I, I, you know, the girls, uh, I couldn't get arrested, and uh, so I think I had to, um, you know, become successful first in order to get lucky. <laughs> <laughs> it's the age-old story, you go into art to get a date. <laughs> well... He became successful. Both Tachi and his second feature, The Rising Star, were hits. And like many of his movies, they were about the struggles and aspirations of women. And that's truthful. I, I, for me, uh, going to the movies was to start a trip, to go into a voyage. And, you know, for me, women are magic. Men are boring. And women are mysterious. And so I think it comes from, you know, I wanted to deconstruct them. and But at the same time, not understand them totally, because otherwise the magic would be gone. So it's maybe no surprise when he started adapting Donaflor that the book's magic was one thing he was determined to keep. And that was the biggest challenge for the screenwriters and I, because I don't, we didn't want to say, oh, you know, this is all this is bullshit, you know. There's no ghost of her first husband. This is just her wishful thinking. It's a projection, a psychological projection. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to be right, walk that line right on the middle. For those who believe in magic or who believe in, in spirits and ghosts, you know, go ahead. And for those who are more rational like me, you know, it's her wishful thinking. Either way, though, what what do you think it means the fact that half of Donna Flor's perfect relationship, the half that represents sex, is a ghost. That sex is this non-tangible, non-corporeal being. Catholicism. 
we are the biggest Catholic country in the world. So sex, sexuality is like a ghost. Oh, interesting. You know, very, very hidden and disguised, but exactly because of that, very, very strong and very potent. That's really the, the essence of what Donna Flo is about. That idea is right there in the famous last scene of the script. As bells chime, the doors of a church swing open, and out comes Donna Flor, along with a crowd of her neighbors, who are all oblivious to the fact that she's happily arm-in-arm with both her mortal husband and the naked ghost of Adina, who's got his hand on her butt. And that's not in the book. That scene was never in the book. And that was an ordeal to shoot that. First of all, the author of the book was against it. He said, you, you just want to be provocative in a, in a, in a shallow way. And he was against it when, when he read in the script. Eventually, though, Amato got the concept, Barreto got his way, and script in hand, he and his team went searching for someone to play Dona Flor and embody the people and desires of Brazil. There seemed to be an obvious choice. Sonia Braga? Well, Sonia is like the Sofia Loren of Brazil. And Sophia Loren is pretty close to God, so I guess <laughs> Sonia is up there. Sonia is, is much more than an actress because Sonia becomes the character. She really becomes the character. I just have to be very careful to not get in her way. She also happens to have Afro-Portuguese heritage, like Dona Flor. And Elizabeth Lowe says, Sonia Braga, her lovely skin, her her features, all are very evocative of the Dona Flor character as she has described in the novel. Her description is that she has um, a delicate round face, the color of mate, and eyes of oil. Do an image search and you'll see, that's Braga. And Beretta was determined not to cast her. Here's why. In 1975, Brazil's TV Globo broadcast a telenovela called Gabriela, based on another novel by Jorge Amado, and starring in the title role, Sonia Braga. So the first thing we said, the producer, the screenwriters, and I said, no, Sonia Braga, no because she's completely identified as Gabriela. And Gabriela couldn't be more different than Dona Flor. Gabriela is a wild girl from the backlands of Bahia. It was completely different than, than Dona Flor. Dona Flor is a middle-class housewife, conservative, short hair. Gabriela is very skinny, long hair, wild. And then I started to test many, many actresses, and uh, this took like almost a, like 10 months. Until finally, everyone was like, you know, we could just cut Sonia Braga's hair. And she's an actress. Why not? Is this like a, a prejudice? And uh, yeah, so, so <laughs> that's when we, oh no, it's, it's her. She is Donna Flor. That was a, 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 a thought of a genius because she, uh, Gabriela, was one of the most popular soap operas of that time. TV Globo was commemorating its 10th year when that soap opera came. One of the first soap operas broadcasted in color in Brazilian television and which made Sonia Braga a huge national star. One of, one of the reasons... Perhaps I wouldn't say if not the main reason of the popularity of Dona Flor is the presence of Sonia Braga and the popularity of the novel itself. Mm-hmm. 
course, no one knew that at the time. With Braga on board, Embra Film, Brazil's state-run film agency, had a feeling it had a hit on its hands. But before shooting began, Barreto's crew wasn't always so sure. The budget already was three times the most expensive Brazilian film ever made. So, you know, I remember the cinematographer who was, I was 20 at the time, and the cinematographer was 24. And we were in the final stages of uh, pre-production, and I said, Bruno, let's get out of this because we're not going to be able to pull it off. This is too big. This is, I'm scared shitless. Let's, you know, disappear. He was like, let's forget it. Let's, let's just forget like... it. Yeah, he was so scared. But uh, I, I, I wasn't. I guess when you're young, you know, you don't, you, you're fearless, you know. And turned out, he really did have nothing to fear. Brazil swoons for Dona Flor. Coming up in a minute. Stay with us. Mubi is a curated streaming service, production company, and film distributor. A place to discover, discuss, and celebrate beautiful cinema. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, each one thoughtfully handpicked by our team of curators. From brand new work by emerging filmmakers to masterpieces by cinema's greatest icons, there is always something new to uncover on the platform. Throughout this first season of the podcast, our online film magazine Notebook is publishing a complimentary piece alongside each episode in a series called Mubi Podcast Expanded. This week, you can check out my extended interview with director Bruno Barreto, in which he discusses his love for John Ford, Pietro Germi, and Francois Truffaut, among others, and shares more behind-the-scenes details about the making of Dona Flor. So, finish this episode, then check out that interview on The Notebook at mubi.com notebook, and of course, to stream the best of cinema, simply head over to mubi.com to start watching. Okay, so we're back in mid-1970s Brazil. Dona Flor and her two husbands with its many sex scenes is being shot. And at this point, you may be thinking, hey, didn't you say there was a repressive, conservative military dictatorship going on? And the answer is yes. Though Joao Vieira says you wouldn't have known it if you spent a lot of time in Brazilian movie theaters. It was strange because the military regime tolerated and even encouraged the what we call porno chanchadas, which were this wave of vapid uh, erotic comedy, soft core comedies with titles such as, let's see, let, let, let me remember this. I, I give what they like and what they like isn't soft. What they like <laughs> Is, is hard, <laughs> something like that. Or let's say, a bra for daddy, another title. Or a bra for daddy. A bra for daddy. Or the secretaries who do everything. <laughs> a lot of Pono Chanchadas were low, low budget and high, high energy, like the Benny Hill show on steroids. They weren't hardcore explicit or anything, but they were insane. In this one called A Thousand One Positions of Love, there's a scene where a guy who hasn't had sex for a while just writhes around in a public bathroom, clutching his groin and howling. For like two minutes. Or how about a scene from The Virgin and the Macho, in which three fully clothed, dirty old men watch a couple make out. The men are pretty aroused. One of them excitedly rubs a cat's tail... 
Another puffs frantically on a cigar until the cat guy's hand slips and hits the smoking guy, which makes him burn the third guy's cheek with his cigar. <laughs> there are dozens and dozens of these movies. The Virgin and the Macho, The Virgin Window, A Macho Among Women. These were all titles that were very, very popular. And, and Dona Flor comes within this wave of, of erotic comedies. So now you may be wondering, why would a censorious conservative military regime be cool with all this sex? Well, that's actually a, a very good question. This laid-back gentleman is one of Brazil's greatest critics and filmmakers, Kleber Mendoza Filho. His amazing 2019 film Bacarao won the jury prize at Cannes. At the time in Brazil, uh, one way of making the whole censorship thing work for their advantage was to ease on on sexuality and expressions of sexuality. And of course, to be very strict about ideas. In other words, scenes with heavy political content or that challenge the status quo, those would get cut. Hardcore, quote unquote, deviant sex would also get the chop. Some films weren't shown at all. There was a whole wave of films from the late 60s and early 70s, which only made it to Brazil in 1979, 1980. Films like Last Tango in Paris and Costa Gavras, uh, C. Clockwork Orange had uh, big problems. In fact, it was never released until 1977. And even then, you know, whenever nudity came up and full frontal nudity, they had these ridiculous black dots, which I can only think that Kubrick agreed to that, basically to expose how stupid and ridiculous censorship is. Actually, you, I, the director, would fly to the capital, Brasilia, where the Board of Censors, you know, is, and we would negotiate with them, you know. Example? A beloved scene where the naked ghost of Adino sits atop an armoire and mocks Fleur's second husband and his pathetic lovemaking skills. <laughs> that was, instead of making trims, I suggested that we would just like in the color correction, darken and make it darker. Having these conversations with suits, it just sounds like uh, simultaneously a nightmare and hilarious. Yeah. I actually, I like to put that in a comedy, some film. I haven't come up with a story yet. By mid-76, the movie was in the can, and it had a lot going for it. Huge star, hot young filmmaker, literary pedigree, the beauty of Bahia. And yeah, it was sexy at a time when sexy films were the rage. But it also had a secret weapon. That government agency, Embra Film, which was actually run at the time by a respected filmmaker himself, Roberto Farias, they decided to pull out all the marketing stops. I give you an example. A Jaws had been uh, released just before. And a Brazilian film was never released with the same uh, amount of uh, prints, same number of prints that uh, an American film was, above all a blockbuster like Jaws. And uh, they decided to release it exactly in the same format as Jaws, the same number of prints. And what did that look like? Cleberfilio uses an example from his home city of Recife. I'm, I'm doing research for a new project and I'm looking at a lot of um, old newspapers. And uh, when you go back to 1977 in the city of Recife, it had a, a number of movie palaces and Donna Flor took two, two of them, a thousand seats each, for 17 weeks straight. <laughs> yeah. 
It, uh, they were maybe a mile from each other. It, it was very unusual for one film to take two. One would do. None of which would have mattered if those theaters were empty. But they weren't. And Joao Vieira says the atmosphere inside was not the polite smiles and nervous titters of the Paris theater audience. Dona Flor was released in Rio right a week before Christmas of 1976. So I saw it at the Roxy Theater, which sits about 1,735 people. It was the first Saturday of the film being released. And I saw it with this huge, amazing audience, sold-out audience. <laughs> I mean, the vacation was coming, we are ready for Christmas. There was this carnival feeling. Very cheering the films and laughing and singing the song at the end. People coming out of the theater humming the lyrics and humming the sounds of O Que Será by Chico Buarque. For Bruno Barreto, it was pretty immediately apparent his career was about to level up. Right away, because it was the first weekend. The first weekend went through the roof. And exactly after the first weekend, Veja, which is the equivalent of Time magazine in Brazil, wanted to have me and Sonia on the cover. And for filmgoers, it was the talk of the country. Well, the first thing I remember, I was not allowed to watch it because it was rated 18 <laughs> and I was eight. Right. But I remember uh, this aunt of mine just laughing her ass off, just describing uh, one of the scenes and she didn't know that the children were listening. She what was the scene? <laughs> it was the scene where uh, Dona Flor is having uh, sex with her new husband and Vadim is up on the closet uh, watching, peeping. It is a hilarious scene. Yeah, it's the kind of scene that people would talk about and choose their words carefully uh, <laughs> in family gatherings. And I think that's when you understand that you're talking about a phenomenon. And that movie-ending theme song you're hearing right now, the one that Saturday night audience left the theater singing, it jumped into the Brazilian music pantheon and never left. More than, I would say, more than a word, a phrase, a scene. I think what stayed many years after Dona Flor is the perennial strength of Chico Buarque's music, O Que Será? It plays all the time on the radio. It's one of the most accessed songs also on YouTube. That is a classic of Brazilian popular music that one always relates. There is no way you cannot relate that song with the atmosphere and the narrative of Dona Flor. Dona Flor eventually sold nearly 10.8 million tickets in Brazil, more than any domestic film ever had, and almost more than any film of any nationality ever had. Except, yes, Jaws. It almost matched Jaws. Uh, uh, the difference was 200,000 people only. Jaws had sold 11 million tickets, and Dona Flor sold uh, 10,800,000 tickets. Just barely. Yeah. Where you kind of like, I'll just leave it in the theaters, just a couple more months. I can beat Spielberg. Yeah. Well, 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 actually, I went, got to meet Steven, and I told him this story. I said, oh, you, you beat me by 200,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? In my own country. <laughs> they laughed. 
Overseas, Donaflor was a big art house hit. It played at the Paris for months, but it wasn't quite a blockbusting popular one. Still, over time, it exerted an international influence of its own. First, by introducing the world to Sonia Braga, who'd go on to be almost as celebrated abroad as at home. The nominees for Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role in a Motion Picture are Sonia Braga, Kiss of the Spider Woman. Sonia Braga, Moon Over Parador. Sonia Braga, The Burning Season. There were also adaptations of Donaflor in the form of a short-lived Broadway musical, Sarava, an American movie version called Kiss Me Goodbye with Sally Field. But if you ask Joao Vieira, its longest-lasting impact was introducing the art house crowd to a very specific kind of cinematic turn-on. Combining cooking with sex, combining cooking with sensuality, and the powers of cooking to gain sensuality, or to create sensuality, or to conquer people through sex. Moqueca de siri mole. Era o prato preferido de Vadim. One of the most famous scenes from Dona Flor, the heroine, who's a cook, remember, gives us her recipe for moqueque, a crab meat stew, Vadino's favorite dish. Serve it hot, as I always did, she says. And Barreto crossfades from the sizzling pot to a flashback of Flor and Vadino undressing each other. Starting a few years after Flor's release, art house audiences started seeing an awful lot of this sort of thing. I remember films, for example, this Mexican film called uh, Like Water from Chocolate by Afonso Arau. A huge success. There was also Japan's Tampopo in 85, Babette's Feast in 87, Italy's The Story of Boys and Girls in 89, billed on its poster as A Feast for Lovers, Chocolat in 2000, and that same year... This 2000 American film produced by Fox Searchlight called Woman on Top, whose screenplay is written by a Brazilian woman from Sao Paulo, uh, Vera Blasi, and whose main character, a Brazilian cook from Bahia, right? <laughs> Look at this mess. This is the quintessential mm, suspicious kind of thing. So she moves from Salvador, Bahia. She has a husband that also a womanizer. You see, you have all this sort of stereotypes that I think relate in one way, relate to the success of Dona Flor, perhaps. Brazil's military regime finally ended in the midst of all this in 1985. A civilian president was elected, democracy and rights were restored, darkness lifted. But nothing is black or white, or one thing or the other. Compared to the 70s, Brazilian film people tell me things were gained and lost. During those years where Dona Flor is located, 1976, we still had the quota system. Every year, every movie theater in Brazil had to show 112 days of Brazilian films. Now, just for a comparison, now I think we barely have 47 days. It's interesting, so you're saying actually during, even though there's a military dictatorship going on, this kind of period is better for Brazilian cinema because it's getting more, you know, promotion, I guess, right. from the government. I agree, I agree entirely. And while international movies were chowing down and sexing up, Clever Filho says Brazilian film started cooling off. The interesting thing is if you look at the Brazilian films in the 90s and, and after that, they have become quite 
conservative in terms of uh, of what you can show because for many years uh, Brazilian cinema was bad-mouthed as all, all you get in Brazilian cinema is just sex and curse words, you know? And I think in the 90s, films tried to distance themselves from that. Under a repressive regime, ironically, certain aspects of cinema were actually more uninhibited. Oh, yeah. Whenever you have a situation of censorship, I mean, I, I myself would definitely try a few things if I knew that there were limits, you know, to what I do. Not that Bruno Barreto looks back fondly at that time as an artist. There was repression. State censors did cut his films. But he says what they didn't do was keep them from even being made. I'm going to be ironic, I'm, and I have to stress this here. I'm not being flip. I'm being just ironic. But I feel a lot more repressed today than at the time, a lot more censored today than at the time. And I'll, I'll explain to you why. Because today, you know, we have a, a banana version of Trump, Bolsonaro, and we do have all this... Uh, you know, right-wing movement. And, and they try to censor projects, uh, the very few projects that are getting made and getting government fund, the government tries to to stop it. And, uh, and on the other, other hand, you have the, you know, the dictatorship of political correctness. So, you know, I wouldn't be allowed today to direct uh, Reaching for the Moon. That's the film Barreto, a straight man, made about the real-life lesbian romance between an American poet and a Brazilian architect. So it's, um, it's very hard for someone who is not ideological today, who is not right-wing or left-wing, to be free creatively. As in much of the world in Brazil, once again, it's a time of extremes. And Bruno Barreto's waiting for everything to end in a samba. And that's the movie podcast for this week. Follow us to hear more deep dives into movies that became part of their home country's canon. Next week, the low-budget video that launched Nigeria's exploding film industry. There are millions of people who are making their livelihood from the industry. And that is what Living in Bondage brought. This episode was hosted, written, and cut by me, Rico Galliano. Jackson Musker is our booking producer. Our engineer was Andy Carson, mastering by Stephen Cologne. Martin Ostwick composed and performed all the music. The show is executive produced by me, along with John Baranachea, F.A. Checkerell, Daniel Kasman, and Michael Taka for a movie. If you're digging the show, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. It will make it easier for others to find us. We would also love you to email us personally with your thoughts, congratulations, and ridiculous memes. Our email is podcast at movie.com. And for an ever-changing collection of carefully handpicked films from iconic directors to emerging auteurs, subscribe to Mubi at movie.com. Till next week, it's a big world. Watch globally. Mm-hmm.